You're listening to Inside the Athletic Mind with your hosts, Taylor Cook, Lauren Williams, and Margaret Jennings. Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Athletic Mind, where we dig deep and shed light on the mental side of sports for female athletes and coaches by having open conversations about mental health, mindset, and performance. In today's episode, we're talking about how to manage expectations around playing time. This is such a hot topic in every team sport because athletes are constantly competing for playing time in each performance. And this can serve as an external validator that can have lasting impacts on athletes' self-worth and value if it is left unchecked. Lauren and I share some of our experiences dealing with playing time as athletes, and MJ shares how coaches can change the script for their players by impressing the importance of building intrinsic motivation and intrinsic factors to help improve performance. Now, if you guys like this episode or if it brings you value, please share it on your social platforms or with a friend to help share that value with them, or feel free to leave us a review on your favorite platform. Things that we have to hit on today, for sure, the U.S. women's national team uh, soccer winning lawsuit. Absolutely bananas. Need to talk about that. Huge step forward for... Huge step forward for equity in women's sport in general. That is amazing. And also, um, the hockey world for like women's hockey got a little bit of attention on national TV as well. When um, the question was asked to Megan Rapino, like, how do you see this playing out for other women's sports? And the conversation went directly to the USA Canada game receiving the most views in 2019 of any hockey game second only to the last stanley cup final which is kind of sick i have chills yeah big step and they say that there's no room on the air for women's sports but i say that there's a huge demand for it and i think those numbers like speak millions to that like literally literally millions well it's interesting right because like you said like airtime like they deserve to be on air like when I grew up like you watch CBC like hockey night in Canada like that is how you watch hockey and that was it but I think what's so cool now is like the way people can take in entertainment has evolved so much right so like whether it's Netflix or whether it's TSN Sportsnet like you get a monthly subscription and you can watch it anywhere on your phone whatever it is but I think there's more and more avenues, you know, becoming available that women's hockey could get into or women's sports in general in order to create those subscriptions to appeal to their groups of followers and build a following that way. Like the irony is it doesn't just have to be, you have to be on this one platform to mm-hmm. be financially successful or grow revenue. Right. Yeah. And it's like, how can you leverage these new things? And like you said, it's, it is being watched by people, right? And there is the interest and these women are being followed on social media and they're starting to show their personalities to the world and the world wants to learn more about them. So it's like, how do we leverage that? Well, and I sent you guys both a podcast earlier this week. It's uh, the Business Case for Women's Sport podcast. And if you guys didn't get a chance to listen to the episode with, I believe it is um, 
Anya Packer, uh, mm-hmm. she works for the NWHL or now I guess the, the PHF, but she was talking about how the engagement rate with the, the players on Instagram and social media is 7% higher than the average for sports. So I guess engagement's typically around 2% for a lot of people, but they're averaging, I guess, between like eight and 9%, which that's like for, for their sponsors. Right. So they're starting to see more investments from sponsors. I know they had a huge thing with, um, is it discovery or discover or something like that? But mm-hmm. yeah, like there's, there's so many different avenues that you can take with it. It's more than just, you know, getting the airtime, but it's also making sure that you're bringing in sponsors that are going to be able to have like that mutual relationship with the players. Right. And I think the benefit with girls and, and women's sports is the fact that we don't take any of this for granted because we've been fighting for it for so long and we're so willing to get behind the brands that are willing to get behind us because that's how we're going to be able to like close that gap and have like the same pay equity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the the conversation has never been around like the idea that we're not grateful for what we have, but what we are tired of hearing is you should be grateful and it's like, well, yeah, we are, we are grateful. Like we're extremely grateful to have a platform. And as part of like the PWHPA last year, I was extremely grateful to hear the fact that these sponsors want to work with you because whenever you post something, the collective of the players, the average audience reached for sponsored posts was over 150,000 people. Like That's huge. on average for the players who would post about it, the average reach was around like 150,000 people, which is amazing. And yeah, we need, absolutely. we do need to get deeper into like the business case for women's sports because it is there. But yeah, absolutely. I think that's like definitely going to be somebody to have on the podcast moving forward. 100%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So diving into the topic for today. I'm so excited to like pick MJ's brain about this because she's had the most behind the bench experience of us all. And I was thinking today, I was like, oh, she's had to have so many conversations with players coming up to her thing. Just tell me what I need to do. What do I need to do to get more playing time? Just tell me. Cause I've been there. I don't know if you've been there, Taylor, but I most certainly have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, throughout, throughout my university career, like it was, you know, two goalies only. We came in the same year and every year we had to battle it out to see who was going to end up getting that starting spot. And I don't think we ever really had the direct conversation with our coach, or at least I didn't about like, what is it that I can do to get that starting spot? It was always just a matter of like, what is it that I can do to be improving? And I guess maybe in, in a, in a sense, it's kind of the same question because you're still always like fighting for the, for the playing time there. Mm. But yeah, I'd love to hear what you have to say about, about that MJ. Like that's going to be interesting. You're on mute. Easy. Okay. So um, I think it's interesting, right? Because this is a a very hot topic in every team sport where people are vying for playing attention or playing time. Um, And I think it's probably like the most sought after extrinsic 
validator, right? Like we compare ourselves to other based on the amount of playing time we get in comparison to someone else. Uh, and for me, like, it's not lost on me because again, like I was an athlete when I was younger. Right. So I'm aware of like how much weight playing time can carry, how much people define themselves and their value based on how much they're playing, how much people pay attention to the playing time of others and how that can be a distraction from what you have in your control. So for me, it was like always a, a touchy subject. Like I'm of the mindset where I really do believe in equal playing time, especially if you're coaching younger kids, because it's all about development. And as soon as you start making it unequal, then more problems and challenges arise from that than good or benefits. Um, and that's also kind of honestly why I really liked being an assistant coach, because I didn't always have to make those hard decisions um, because I didn't like having to make those decisions because often if a coach shortens the bench, right? Like, so at the higher levels, you know, you're going to have a, a power play one group or a PK one group or whatever it might be. You're trying to win. You put out who you think or feel might be the best players for that situation. Um, and sometimes you don't want to do that. And it's a hard decision to make. And it's kind of a lose-lose because, you know, even if you feel that putting these people out are going to win you the game, if they win you the game, great but you still have to deal with the negative consequences of sitting other people in favor of them. If they aren't successful, then it's like only going to multiply the backlash that will come from like choosing to put those people out there. Right. And there's no clear cut right answer around it, but I did come across this interesting thing. Like it's um, Daniel Pink drive, like the book on motivation or whatever. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar Mm -hmm. But like it's the talk about like intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. So in sport, extrinsic motivation, playing time is probably one of the most valuable, right? Or emphasized extrinsic motivators in sport. And there's a quote here that I wanted to share with you guys and see what your thoughts are. So if we think about a baseline reward being playing time, so the extrinsic motivator, if someone's baseline rewards aren't adequate or equitable, their focus will be on the unfairness of the situation and the anxiety of their circumstance. You'll get neither the predictability of extrinsic motivation nor the weirdness of intrinsic motivation. You'll get very little motivation at all. I just want to know what you guys thought of that. I that hits home for me. That space. <laughs> yeah. Lauren, I'll let you share, share that little bit of that first, and then I can kind of share mine afterwards. Cause I'd like to hear like the player's perspective, because obviously like, that's not my reality. Yeah. Um, well, I can hands down say that at one point in my career, I would have played on a losing team where I got to play more as opposed to playing on a winning team where I played less. And I've been in both situations, right? And when I got to college, it was a huge shock for me because like expectations were what they were. The situation was different than I thought it was going to be. Um, and I ended up sitting on the bench a lot more than I thought that I ever would. And I was even in like cases where I wasn't dressing for games. So having that as my expectation to say, okay, well, if I'm not playing, what's the next step to be playing okay so then once i'm dressing consistently what's the next step to be 
the one who's getting, you know, 15, 20 minutes at least of ice a game because that means that I'm going out there. But what lied under that for me was this idea of being dependable. But if you double click under that, being dependable, it's basically telling myself that I was waiting for my coach to tell me that I was good enough by putting me out on the ice consistently. And I remember feeling exactly what you're talking about, right? Like the anxiety of not knowing where the positive feedback is going to come from. I had no idea what decisions my coach was going to make in the moment. And I was way too focused on his decisions as opposed to being more focused on what I was doing and what I could control. And ultimately, it led me to like a pretty miserable place because I was anxious all the time. And then I was frustrated because I didn't know what I was doing wrong and I didn't know how to make it better. So that like combination of anxiety that leads to frustration put me in a pretty horrible spot in terms of like loving the sport that I was playing. But I think it's all too common, especially for team sports, right? Like everybody wants to be on the ice. Everybody wants to be on the ice in that last minute of play. Everybody wants to be on the ice in overtime. But the reality is, is that not everybody can. That's the nature of the sport. So the question that we have to ask is, what can you focus on instead? And I did not learn that until quite a bit later in my hockey career. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of similar for me, I guess. Um, it's a little bit different for goalies though, right? Like it's not a matter of how many minutes are you going to get in the game? It's like, you're either going to play or you're not. Um, and in our situation, like I was saying earlier, like we only had two goalies my first season. We both came in as freshmen, so we had to battle it out. So it was pretty well a 50-50 split until we hit playoffs. And then coach finally made a decision as to who he wanted to, to take us into the playoffs and such. Um, now, at that, at that point in time for me, I don't know if... Yeah, I don't really know if I felt like I should have been getting that playing time because I wasn't the one that got put in the playoff spot. So I was like pretty frustrated, pretty upset with myself. And, and it really reflected on like my self-worth as an athlete. Like I didn't feel like I was even good enough anymore because we were pretty close in statistics, but at the end of the day, he chose her over me. And I feel like Maybe it's a little bit different for goaltenders in the sense that like, if you are on the bench as a player, you will get playing time pretty much at some point throughout the game. Like you'll have an opportunity to step on the ice, not always, but usually that opportunity is there. Right. And especially like, if you're going to be in playoffs, like you need to have a roster there for you. But when your coach tells you like he wants another goaltender to be playing instead of you for the entire like run of playoffs, that's a really hard pill to swallow. Um, and I felt obviously really hurt at that time. And I just didn't really know how to cope with it. And my maladaptive strategy was to deflect. And I just found every excuse in the book 
to keep my ego safe, I guess. So it was like, you know, what's going on outside of me as a reason that I'm not getting that playing time. So at the end of that year, I'm really, really grateful now that him and I had a conversation about accountability and making sure that I'm, you know, holding myself accountable and responsible for my own actions. Because at the end of the day, I am, it's a team sport, but I'm still accountable to what it is that I'm doing on the ice and how I'm performing, which actually allowed me to grow a lot over the summertime, take accountability for my actions. And then the following year, I actually came in and was able to hold a starting position. But at that moment in time, like it's, it's difficult and you don't know how to handle it. And it really does affect your, your mental health and how you think about yourself as an athlete. I think a big part of it, cause I always think, okay, like how can coaches help? <clears throat> cause at the end of the day, a lot of coaches are past players. Right. And I think like we, we see them as like this other, right. Like they're the enemy or they're like, they're these people where these people, we can't understand one another. And I think there's a lot more in common than different, but I think, like you said, we all know that playing time or we should know, or we need to be educated, all coaches, that playing time is something that if left unattended to players will probably form some sort of maladaptive relationship with, right? Like they will feel like their worth or their value to the team is determined by how much they play. And if they're not playing as much, they're not valued as much. And if they're playing more, they're better than the other people that are on the team, right? So part of it is like having that conversation out of the gates to change the relationship with playing time or to not make their value so dependent subconsciously on their time on ice. And I think that's the challenge too, is like analytics, like they're getting popular. I know in college, like we had a time on ice report for every game. And I know there are players that went on afterwards and were like, you know, like, oh, they had two, two minutes and 45 seconds more than me, but I played so much better. Like we are naturally drawn to social comparison. And as coaches, the best thing we can do for our athletes is to try to empower them by making them confident in their abilities. So like one thing that comes to mind for me is communication, like having those conversations and emphasizing, like, what are your strengths? What is it that you can bring to this team? What is your role? Right. Because role and doing your job and executing on your strengths really well has nothing to do with the amount of minutes you're on the ice. So you're shifting the perspective to execution and not something outside of your control, which can change for a variety of circumstances. Right. So, like for me, and I don't know if this was your experience too, but in hockey, right? It's like, okay, like PP1, like that's the dream. I want to be on the first power play. That means I'm one of the best players on the team. And that's like, that's it. Right. So as a defensive coach, like in university, I really fought to get buy-in on the PK. Right. And I don't know why there isn't more buy-in to be on the PK because PKs happen for our team way more than power plays. Right. They're just as important to the outcome of the game. Like you can have a role that can really win us the game in the same way as a power play can, but it's changing your relationship. Like what are your players strengths? And how can you frame them so they understand how valuable that is to the team's performance, right? Mm -hmm. And it's changing the conversation about their strengths and what they can contribute versus their limitations and external measures of that. Yeah. When, like, correct me if I'm wrong too, MJ, but I think maybe some of that focus on, like, 
power play one versus power play two and, and PK and who you're putting out in those moments gets so valued is because as a coach, like you have to figure that stuff out. Because ultimately, like you hear it all the time, power plays can win games for teams. Penalty kills can win games for teams, right? So they're those pivotal moments. But as an athlete myself, like if I would have been told going into college or been helped to better understand what my role was going to be, it would have helped me tenfold. Because like when you're playing high school hockey, it goes from... I always described it as I was a big fish in a really small pond, right? And then you get to the next level and you're like a tiny minnow in the ocean. And there's a lot of catch up that you have to do from physical development and lifting to like hockey IQ and being able to play at a faster pace. But I had the expectation of, oh, I should still be playing like I was in high school, right? Like, oh, that's the same, that's the expectation. But here I am coming into like one of the top programs in the nation as a defensive defenseman thinking like, oh yeah, power play, that sounds great. <laughs> like, yeah, let's go for power play. And realistically, that was not in the cards for me at all because it's not the kind of hockey player that I am at that level. And if I would have maybe known and understood that at an earlier stage. I'm not saying I wouldn't have struggled with that realization because I would have, but being able to say, look, it's not that you're not playing that because we don't trust you or because we don't value you and what you do, but we want you to play to other strengths and recognizing that maybe these are not your top strengths. And if it's something that you want to be, then let's work on it. But why don't we work on fortifying the strengths that you have first? I think that's a really interesting comment that you just made, Lauren. Like being a really big fish in a little pond and then getting to, to university and being a minnow in an ocean. Now, I, I kind of want to hear from you guys, like what kind of mindset do you think that young athletes should be having going into and transitioning into like college or the higher level of hockey. So they have maybe more realistic expectations for themselves going into a situation like that and how that can actually help them not only play better, but also possibly end up getting into a role that they want to be playing in that team. Oh my God, learning, development, process. <laughs> it's like uh, what, what mindset do you enter in though? Because like, keep like, think about when, when you were going from high school to university, like you thought that like, you were just going to keep playing big the same way that you were when you were in high school, but then you get that like brutal wake up call that, Hey, this is stronger, faster. You need to be able to read and react and you need to be able to make plays and you need to understand not just your role, but also everybody else's role. So you can make sure that you find them on the ice when you need to. Mm. Yeah. Well, like before MJ, before you hop in, like hmm. that, that's the thing though, right? Is like 
you have to, I think that every athlete needs to know that it is going to be a jump and it is going to be an adjustment. And by virtue of knowing that, the mindset is your first couple of months is all about learning and adjusting and focusing on development, not on where you're at in the lineup sheet, not on like power play one, power play two. It's about the small details and where the game is changing and figuring that shit out because ultimately we all know it's the small stuff that creates a bigger picture. Yeah, right. Like you say, when you get there, like focus on learning, right? Like focus on being able to adapt. And for me, it's trying to create that mindset in the athletes at a younger age. So that regardless of the situation they're in, if their mindset's on that, they can grow and adapt, whether they're a big fish in a little pond or a minnow in an ocean, right? Like the environment's not going to change them because they're just focusing on how they are swimming and how to get better at swimming, you know? And I think, but it's a double-edged sword, right? I don't know if you can attest to this too, Lauren, like we both grew up in Southwestern Ontario. Like I, the whole little fish in a, or a big fish in a little pond resonates with me. And I really struggled with it when I went away too, but ironically being a big fish in a little pond comes with a lot of external praise and rewards like you are on the first line people know who you are right like you're considered a good player you're getting good job great job you're a great player from all of these external sources and naturally as humans when we get that we value that and we use that to fuel our confidence but then again, like our value and our worth, whether it's negative or positive is determined by those things we're hearing from people. And then we go into an environment where it flips on its head and we're like, wait, you know, like, what is this? Like, where's my good job? Where's my, I'm awesome. Like, where's my power play one time? Like, who are these other people? Like, so that's the challenge, right? Is not making it about the environment you're in, like making it about how you're performing and how you feel about your own performance, not how everyone else feels about it or sees it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I feel like it's very difficult for the young athletes to, to see that obviously, rightly, because it's really not part of a lot of the coaches strategies when it comes to coaching their players. Um, and I mean, parents are going to be parents, right? Like they're going to congratulate you on a good game. Like they're going to say all the praises for you all the time. Um, and sometimes maybe you'll have parents that are quite the opposite of that. I, I'm not too sure, but um, yeah, like just being able to educate the young players about the importance of that internal drive, the internal factors, the internal motivation, and why that's more important than getting that external praise and, and getting the external benefits because at the end of the day you can't control what's happening outside of you you can't control whether or not your coach is going to put you out in the game you can't control anything you can't control the refs you can't control the other team you know like so how how do you think it's possible to have coaches start to impress upon young athletes the importance of getting in touch with the internal goals and the internal like factors for their performance it's really about creating an environment where that is the focal point right like i think and part of it's just 
acknowledging like these limitations or these tendencies that we have as humans, right? Like there's the analogies, like the crab in a bucket analogy. Like if you heard that one where you put a bucket, like there's the social comparison and there's the element of like, we don't want other people to be successful because if they're successful, it means that I'm a failure. So like, let's accept that social comparison is just a part of it. Right. And if we acknowledge that it exists, then we can make proactive ways to fight against that. Right. So like, if you consider a team being like a bunch of crabs thrown in a bucket and the reality is a lot of environments are like that. Like one starts to rise and the rest pull them down where it's like, they just work together. Like everyone can get out of the bucket and, and be successful. Right. And any time you spend trying to pull another crab down is time spent not helping yourself elevate out of the bucket. You know what I mean? And there's two other analogies. I just like analogies. So I'm going to, are you going to use the frog in the bucket? Because that's one my university coach used all the time. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just the crabs in a bucket. The other one is tall poppy syndrome, which is like, you know, didn't you post about people. that yesterday to this morning, actually oh, this morning. Okay. But I heard about it this weekend, but it's the idea that like, there's this social pull towards conformity and mediocrity. And if we see someone be really successful, like either from a wealth standpoint or intellectual standpoint, we want to cut them down. Like we want to criticize them and, and shame them. And then there's a Japanese saying that is like the hammer that stands the tallest gets nailed down. Like, so there's just like, let's accept that it happens and let's expect that it's going to happen, but let's make a conscious effort to create an environment that doesn't promote and fuel that type of behavior. Because if left to their own devices, that is typically the way people go. Kids will criticize other kids that are being successful. Parents will sometimes fuel those arguments or those misunderstandings or whatever. So like get the parents, get the support groups, get the kids all in the same room. Let's have a conversation. Here's some things we might run up against. Here's what we're going to do to try to ensure that everyone focuses on growing. Like your job as a coach is that at the end of the year, all of your kids are better than they were when they first came in. And that requires a culture of growth, not a culture of comparison. Yeah. And I think another exercise to do too, like from a coaching standpoint, is getting the brain turned on to focusing on goals that they're setting for themselves, goals that they make for themselves, right? And this is something that I'm now doing with all of the younger athletes that I work with is before you get to practice or before you get to the game, write out three very specific things that you want to work on and get them in your head and figure out, you know, how you're going to work on them throughout practice. Like maybe you want to work on finishing your battles. How do you measure that by like, maybe it's by pinning someone to the boards and making sure that you're able to separate them from the puck, whatever it may be. And then having them reflect on it before they talk to anybody else after practice how did I do on these things? Was I successful 50% of the time? Did I kind of put forth my effort, but not really? Or did I do a really good job on this? Let's solidify that, right? But as a coach on the ice too, I think it's so important to foster that in young kids because they're not taught it, right? The kids go to school and they get grades. And it's, hey, you performed well versus you didn't. And there's not a whole lot of conversation around, here's what you did right. And here's what you can improve on. So whenever I would start a drill, working with 11-year-old boys playing AAA hockey where external pressures were already way too high, 
the question that I asked is, what is it that you can work on during this drill? And they all knew from me, like different things that we had talked about. One kid would say, oh, I want to work on making sure that I stay in between the dots on one-on-ones. And just being able to hear that, I think, is super encouraging. But we don't teach kids how to do that. So as a coach, it's like, can you ask those questions on the ice or on the field? Can you get athletes to start thinking about the controllable little things that they can do in a situation that ultimately contribute to a success? Mm-hmm. And when it comes to like giving your players that feedback, I was reading a book last couple of weeks called Limitless Mind. Super good book. I sent you guys tons of quotes about it. Um, but it really does reinforce these this idea. It's talking more along the lines of like teachers and students, but it can obviously be applied to coaches and athletes as well. Like the teachers that worked with their students and gave them qualitative feedback rather than quantitative feedback found that their students were more invested in how that they and how they could improve on that task moving forward versus if they're given a number rating they just they just saw saw the number they're like oh okay good or oh that's not good but outside of that there was no desire to learn how they could close that quantitative gap to improve their results versus the qualitative feedback was much more growth mindset more productive for the kids yeah i I think it's because qualitative gets into our feelings right like statistics are just numbers like it's analytical but when you talk qualitative like that's what triggers the feelings and the emotions and that's what's going to drive our motivation and just back to what you're saying, right? Like I, I totally agree with all of that. Like coaches need to focus on that, give qualitative feedback, create space, ask those questions. What are you thinking about? What are you focusing on? The challenge is that coaches have never learned the value of that or how to do that. Like coaches were those kids that are in the same cycle that the players are in now. They got grades. They were told they were good or bad based on this. Their playing experience or athletic experience was very comparable. So it's it's all about like trying to break that cycle and educate them so that they can understand the power of this stuff so that they can teach it to the athletes, right? Because right now in times, it's just kind of like the blind leading the blind and everyone's well-intentioned. Like no one, you know, wants to not perform to their best, whether you're a coach or an athlete, but it's just, it's the information piece. It's understanding like the awareness comes before intelligence, right? Like we always say. Yeah. And do you think that this is going to be a matter of like making sure that we're educating our younger coaches, because I mean, we see this with, with like the great resignation, right? Like having these kind of old guard CEOs who aren't really open to learning new leadership strategies, all of their employer or employees rather are quitting. They want to go to jobs that are going to be more fulfilling and meaningful to them. And they're not looking at like, the the financial value of their worth they're looking for the internal value of of their work right and do you so i'm I'm curious like do you think this is going to be a matter of okay we need to kind of just wait for the old guard coaches to kind of you know graduate and and like resign or or (laughs) i guess retire is the correct word here um and and then we'll have like this new generation of coaches that are more 
educated in terms of making sure that their players do pay attention to those internal factors and are more geared towards being like a healthier athlete in that sense versus yeah I guess like just having to work to educate the the old guard here and see if they're ever going to be willing to open up to that well I I mean I don't think it's a, a lost cause right I think we know like the older you get sometimes people become more and more into fixed mindset, right? Like those neural pathways are only strengthened and deepened. So it is harder for them to change their mind. But I do think there are coaches, like, I don't think we can discount the fact that they wouldn't like to do things differently, right? Like some older coaches, again, they've done things the way they do them because that's the only way they know how. So in my mind, as many people as we can get the information and awareness and lessons out to the better, the actual lasting change may not happen until we get to that younger, like growth mindset oriented group, but wherever we can make change, we want to make change. Right. I don't say just dispose of the old people. I think we should, we should give everyone a chance to, to grow and learn. <laughs> I didn't say dispose of the old people just to clarify. <laughs> I don't know the vibes I got like a little, it was a little disposy, but that's fine. <laughs> Just toss them into an old folks home. They'll be Don't good. worry, old folks, I've got you. <laughs> I think that's huge though, right? And I also think that there's the new generation of athletes is going to have something to say about the way that they're coached. Because I think that now more than ever, athletes have some sort of idea about this, right? And they're not, they're not willing to put up with, you know, maybe what, all of us experienced and most certainly the generation of coaches that coached us experienced as kids like it's not acceptable to just yell your face off at practice the whole time anymore it's not acceptable to make what we now consider are like absolutely degrading comments to players about their play right because it gets out and people take action about it because it's just not acceptable But at the same time, we are recognizing that it's the small stuff, right? And it's the things that you don't expect to have a big impact, like playing time, which is why we're talking about it right now, that do ultimately end up having a big impact. And understanding that, yes, it's a huge responsibility. Like I remember going into my first season as a coach thinking, oh my God, I don't want to like psychologically ruin any of these kids (laughs) by saying the wrong thing. But then also trusting that, like, especially if you have experience playing before or a lot of experience as a coach, it has to come from a place of like, sometimes it's what would I have liked to hear? in this situation when I was in their position. It's always a good place to start is like, all right, if I was in this position, what would I like to hear right now? But of course we get emotional and that's not always the route that we take. I don't know if it's a matter of like what I would like to hear. Maybe this is just for me, but like what I would have needed to hear instead, because I'm sure I would have liked to hear a lot of things, you know, but like, what did I absolutely need to hear in that moment that was going to allow me to get the perspectives that I needed that was going to allow me to grow the way I needed to. 
Right. Yeah. That's what, that's what I mean. Like liked and needed to. Yeah. And sometimes it's just like, again, I've interviewed and I've spoken with a ton of coaches and ironically, a lot of them soften up as they've been around and been doing it for a while. Like there's this talk of when you first start, it's like, you do feel this urge to kind of be like authoritative or like dictate. And you, you feel the weight of all like the responsibility and the power. And then sometimes you make decisions that aren't great. And in hindsight, a lot of coaches, when they reflect on their first couple of years are like, man, like if I could go back and change that, I would, but it can be freeing to just like, even just to say to your players, listen, like I'm a human, just like you, I'm here to support you. I'm going to make decisions sometimes that might not be the right ones. Like I might make mistakes. And even something like that can take some of the weight off because if a coach comes across as like powerful and authoritative, the weight of all of their decisions, like they own that too. And it, it, you know, the players reflect on that more as well. So sometimes it's just like admitting like, Hey, I'm not always going to get it right. I don't know. Like, how would you guys feel about that? If you had a coach that said that, would it change your perception at all? Yeah, I think to an extent, right. Because then you have the perspective of like, well, they're not a know-it-all right. And they're not closed off to the idea of making new choices. Right. But when you have the coach who like, Hey, it's my way or the highway. It's like, okay, well then what am I banging my head up against a wall for if it's not going to change? I've never really had a super authoritative coach in that sense. So I don't really think I can give my perspective here. I think objectively speaking, yes, I think it would have been good to, to have a coach admit like I'm human. I'm not always going to make the right decisions, but I'm going to do my best to serve you and your needs as an athlete. But it's, it's leading by example when it comes to the growth mindset, right. Versus a fixed mindset. Like if you are a fixed minded coach, rightly or wrongly, you're going to create an environment that drives that type of behavior or values that type of behavior. And then your athletes will, you know, inherit those traits. If you have a growth mindset, then the environment is going to mimic that. And then the athletes are more prone to choose that behavior. Like I always said athletes are smart. Like they're going to read what the coach says and does, and they're going to determine how to act and behave and reply to things based on that, that model that's being set. Have you ever had like a tough conversation around how much do you focus on the individual athlete versus the team goals? Right. Because I think I I've been in a situation where I had no, or I wouldn't say I had no idea, but I had almost a negative feeling around saying like, I need to focus on this for me, not necessarily for the team. I'm not sure if it's going to help the team, but I know it's going to help my mental health. And then almost feeling bad about that, right? Because it's like, oh my gosh, I'm not going towards, or my perception was I'm not going towards a team goal, right? And there's always the essence of, team first and it's always like the team before the individual but I think there's an important conversation to be had that the team is still the sum of the individuals and you need all individuals to understand their role understand how to execute it be able to show up at 100% in order for that team goal to come to fruition 
but how much have you talked about like, okay, how do we help people focus on themselves in the context of the team? And have there been any difficult conversations around that? Well, I think it goes back to at the beginning of the season, really trying to iron out what are your strengths? Like you have to have a really good idea from the get-go of what matters the most to that athlete, how they perceive themselves, right? Because the reality is like, it's not always a case of what a player perceives as their strengths or weaknesses are really their strengths and their weaknesses. So sometimes that's a difficult conversation to have because it's not like you're trying to tell them what they're good or bad at. You're just trying to enhance their self-awareness. Right. Mm -hmm. And often I find with girls, the irony is they're less likely to be able to identify their. She froze, right? It's not just me. A team no, goal. She froze. Oh, she's back. <laughs> oh, here we go. Hey, oh, it happened again. <laughs> no, it's, it's really hard to set a team goal and a direction for the team without first knowing all of that stuff about your athletes. Like, mm -hmm. what are your strengths? Like, what do you aspire to achieve? Because I think you need to know all of that to be able to find the sweet spot between, okay, like what can bring this entire group together? Like what can they rally around? Like what can be something that we can accomplish as a team, but also leaves space for all of these players to grow in the ways that they want to, right? Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we make like a team goal or like the expectation so set in stone and maybe too uh, defined. And then players find themselves on the outside of that. And like you said, they feel like, well, I can't, be the best that I want to be or like grow in the ways I want to and also cater to the team goal and you don't want to create that environment like it's really important that they align with one another mm -hmm. I don't know if that answers your question no it does no, I'm I'm kind of curious from a oh go ahead Lou sorry I was just gonna say because because my question comes from like the the feeling of like, oh, well, I'm a part of the team, but I'm not directly contributing all the time to the goal, right? So like, mm. sh shit, if I'm not contributing to the team goal, what is my value on this team? And I think that's a really common feeling to, to have when you're so team goal oriented. Well, and that's where like clarity of role matters too, right? So you collect that intel at the beginning of the season. I've worked with a couple high level coaches. I really like this, but they basically created calling cards for each of the players. Mm -hmm. So it would like explain the player and it would explain their strengths and it would explain their role on the team. And like, these are things that they can bring consistently that it's their identity, right? And they agree to that identity, but also like, and I don't know what your experience is with this, but their identity was Oh, really again? Yeah. yeah. Rewind. I can't even remember. Um, what I was saying was like, do you find it's you hard? You say something like, what were you going to say though about the identity? Because like agreeing on it, but then also understanding something else. That's where you cut out. So you have to agree on what that identity is. You might be able to help an athlete elaborate on it, right? Who might have like a limited scope for their self-concept but then it also has to be something that's in their control that's not dependent on the scoreboard or playing time or anything like that i don't know if you guys run into this but i know when it comes to goal setting so like you said helping the athletes decide on their personal goals is huge or individual goals it is very hard for them to make individual goals that aren't 
that are in their control. Because even when they set goals, right? It's like score 20 goals, play 20 minutes, like be on the first power play. Those are all things that are out of your control, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the challenge too, is the moment you have goals that are not in your control, whether they're individual or team goals, then you absolutely will hit a point where you feel like you can't contribute to it because you're not in control of that contribution. Okay, so we're, we're kind of coming up on an hour here. So I have a couple, couple questions. Hopefully it'll make you guys think a little bit. Lauren and MJ both. For athletes, what is something that they can take away from this conversation here that's going to help them bring those external goals within themselves? I think that first off, like knowing yourself really well is the, is the starting point, right? And focusing on yourself and being able to, like MJ said, pick out your strengths and your weaknesses and being honest with yourself about that, right? Because I think as, especially as female athletes, we're afraid to admit that we have things that we're not very good at or things that we haven't quite mastered yet, right? Because then we get into the, oh my gosh, I'm not good enough thought train. But being honest with yourself about what your strengths and your weaknesses are. And then my next step is like asking yourself if that currently fits in with the goals that you have for yourself as an athlete. So like in my case, when I was in high school, I could tell you very well what my strengths and weaknesses were. I was a defensive defenseman who was good at making a first pass out, who was good at stopping two-on-ones, one-on-ones, odd man rushes. And I would literally tell you that I was the D that would get the puck out of my zone and get off because that was my job. And I knew that that's where my strengths were. But at the same time, I was telling people that I wanted to be on power play. Like, how does that work? Where does that come from, right? Because I wasn't willing to admit that my strengths weren't in the offensive zone. My strengths didn't come when I was getting the puck on the point, being able to move from the boards to the center and pick out the pass or know specifically when to take a shot. Those were not my strengths. But if I had been honest with myself in saying that, then maybe I would have been able to say, okay, well, is that the role that I should be shooting for anymore? And it's not a bad thing to say that like, nope, that's not the right role for me. So understanding yourself and what your strengths and your weaknesses are, and then looking at your overall goal for who you want to be as an athlete is a great starting point. And then you get the action steps next. So if it doesn't align with who you want to be, is it something that you're going to work on? Or do you want to redefine who you want to be? What you want your role to be? And then go to work. Continue to like fine-tune your strengths as much as you can. Work on the weaknesses that are going to ultimately help you accomplish um, being able to fit into your role, being able to be successful in the position that you hold. Yeah. Beautiful. MJ, you're up. Well, from a coach's perspective, um, in terms of supporting 
athletes, right. And be able to set goals that make them just feel better about their performance. One simple thing is just asking more than telling, right. So like Lauren said, like it starts with self-awareness and a lot of athletes don't have self-awareness because they've never been given space to develop it, right? Like they're told what they're good at. They're told what they're bad at, or they can pick it up based on how those rewards are being doled out and they jump, they'll create their own assumptions. So really asking questions much like Lauren did, right? Like, what are you focusing on in this drill? Create space for athletes to assess themselves and their own performance to develop confidence in their ability to do that because they need that in order to set realistic goals for themselves that they can feel good about rather than have these goals implanted on them that they believe that they should feel good about or care about right? That's kind of the change. So really it just starts with asking more than telling and getting to know your players. And also, you know, like Lauren said, she, even though she knew her strengths. So once you get past that, you know what your strengths are. You still feel like it's like oh, PP one, I have to be on PP one. It's because in the environment, again, if left to its own devices, you're going to think that is where the best players play. So redefining what's important and the ways that your players can contribute to the program will help take away some of that over-focus on, on playing time as well. Great answers all around guys. I feel like we're in like a Miss Canada pageant. You are, I forgot to tell you. <laughs> International though, it's like Ash. Mrs. Worldwide. <laughs> Pitbull's wife? Yeah, exactly. This is worldwide. <laughs> <laughs> Said it. Said the worldwide. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you, Arrivederci for our international followers. <laughs> <laughs> that is goodbye, right?